You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Today's show is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, MD, Scuttlebutt, Hartman, Gingrich, Clan Roland, Big Beard, Willie P, Schmarls, Proctor, Long Knives Logan, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Pitluck, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstrap Spade. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt, thank you for listening. Let's begin today with the opening words of William Kidd's Letter of Mark from King William III. They read, Greeting, whereas we are informed that Captain Thomas II, John Ireland, Captain Thomas Wake, and Captain William Mays, or Mace, and other subjects natives or inhabitants of New York and elsewhere in our plantations in America have associated themselves with diverse others, wicked and ill-disposed persons, to commit many piracies, robberies, and depredations, and it goes on like that for some time, finally getting around to William Kidd's writ to hunt, capture, and kill the Red Sea Pirates. But it's not William Kidd I want to talk about today. We'll leave him in New York recruiting every skullduggerous scoundrel he could find. Instead, today I want to look at those he was tasked with hunting down, those pirates of the round in the Indian Ocean and on Madagascar at the end of 1695 and beginning of 1696. This is episode 230, Wicked and Ill-Disposed Persons. I'll begin with the pirates specifically named in that letter of mark. Now, the first pirate named was Captain Thomas II, but he was dead. So, let's move on to number two, John Ireland. It's a little bit strange that John Ireland was named in that document at all, let alone so prominently. He wasn't a pirate captain, well... Actually, he was, but the King of England didn't know that yet. John Ireland, though, was a relatively well-known and respectable pilot in New York and New England. 
I suspect that's why he was named in the letter of mark at all. There were people who knew him. They knew he set sail with Thomas too, and they knew that he was with the Red Sea Pirates. As far as anyone in the Atlantic world knew, he was not a pirate captain, and they don't call him one in the letter of mark. He's just a pilot. And it's even possible considering his more or less respectable past, that they might even have thought he was a hostage, you know, a pirate's captive, forced to work on pain of death. Pirates were, after all, known to take prisoners and force them to work, but usually only specialists, like carpenters or surgeons or pilots. So it was plausible here, and it was absolutely what John Ireland was going to tell the Admiralty after he was caught. But it's not true. When Captain Thomas II was killed in battle, John Ireland took command. Now, that's kind of natural. You know, he was the pilot. He was really the best-suited person to take command. And that doesn't immediately make him a nefarious pirate. I mean... They were kind of stuck out in the Indian Ocean, a couple of thousand miles from anywhere they might call home. And their ship was damaged. Basically, it was sinking. It would have been irresponsible not to take command. He was the best-suited sailor to get them, and himself, to safety. But John Ireland's story doesn't end there. Adam Baldridge writes in his lengthy deposition, quote, December 11, 1695. Arrived the sloop Amity, having no captain, her former captain, Thomas II, being killed by a great shot from a Moor's ship, John Yarland, master. They stayed but five days at St. Mary's and set sail to seek the charming Mary. They met her at Maritan on Madagascar and took her, giving Captain Glover the sloop Amity, he means, to carry him and his men home. Now, we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves, but the point here is that John Ireland arrived at St. Mary's in command of a pirate ship. He and the crew of the Amity spent five days gathering wood and water and doing some repairs, but then they sailed out under John Ireland to capture another ship, the Charming Mary. Now, it wasn't exactly explicitly malicious piracy here. They weren't on the hunt for booty and plunder. They needed a way home. And Amity was not going to get them around the Cape, much less to America. They needed a seaworthy vessel, and Adam Baldridge told John Ireland just where to find one in the Charming Mary. Now allow me to rewind a bit, because we've actually met charming Mary before. She sailed under a Captain Richard Glover, originally out of Newport, but with a commission from Governor Benjamin Fletcher of New York. Richard Glover's brother-in-law, a man named John Hoare, commanded another ship, the John and Rebecca, that got a commission at the same time. Roughly the same time that Thomas too got his own 1695 commission. In fact, there was some confusion later on, supposing that those three ships sailed together. But Thomas too was on his own mission. The Charming Mary and the John and Rebecca sailed together in a pair 
and they had their own orders. Back when we introduced them, I suggested that they may have been sailing as interlopers, illegal slave smugglers, and doing so on orders from Benjamin Fletcher. And their voyage certainly started out that way. They stopped off at the Lesser Antilles on their way to Africa, and it was there at Martinique that they picked up a former slave, perhaps an escaped slave, named Abraham Samuel. Remember last time when we discussed Hendrik van der Heuel, that probably mixed-race privateer who was elected quartermaster of the adventure galley? Well, I pointed out the incorrect fact, though often cited, that van der Heuel was the highest-ranking privateer of African ancestry yet to sail, and I debunked that claim with a couple of captains that predated van der Heuel by decades. But if that's not good enough for you, Abraham Samuel was voted quartermaster of the John and Rebecca just about a year before van der Heuel signed up for Adventure Galley. And by that point, they were no longer sailing as interlopers. They'd moved on to regular old piracy. Nothing too spectacular, nothing to rival the capture of Ganji Sawai, and they kept it more or less honest by attacking mostly French shipping. Adam Baldridge records them visiting St. Mary's just a few weeks before the capture of Ganji Sawai on 6 August 1695. Oddly, that's the first record that Baldridge has after Thomas II left St. Mary's way back in 1693, on his first Red Sea cruise. It looks in that record like he was just kind of alone for two years. I assume he probably had some non-piratical visitors, but when it comes to pirates at St. Mary's Island, when it rains, it pours. Only a few weeks after Richard Glover left, Thomas Wake and his friends arrived from New York, and they were followed in succession by Henry Avery, Thomas II, and then Henry Avery again. There was a lull while the pirates were waiting at the Bab al-Mandeb, but by December 1695, Adam Baldridge was a very busy man. That's when all the pirates from the Ganji Sawai raid began to filter back to Madagascar. The first one to reach St. Mary's was the Susanna, under Thomas Wake, on the 7th of December. And they were in bad shape. The ship, yeah, had been damaged, but the crew was even worse off. At some point, an outbreak of sickness hit the men, and they barely limped into port. Then Baldridge writes, quote, They stayed until the middle of April, where the captain and master and most of his men died. So that's all she wrote for Thomas Wake. But only a few days after the arrival of the Susanna, Amity arrived with John Ireland. And of course we know that they left shortly thereafter, but while the men of the Susanna were lying around, dying, they must have been wondering what happened to the two largest ships in the fleet. The Fancy and Portsmouth Adventure. They wouldn't have had any idea, they returned before the end of the events out there in the ocean, but we, with hindsight, know exactly what happened. 
the two ships bypassed St. Mary's entirely, sailing around the north coast of Madagascar, but about the time they hit the northwest corner, they were hit by a pretty bad storm. Fancy weathered it well enough, but Portsmouth Adventure ran aground at the Comoros Islands. She was wrecked and unable to sail. After a few days of waiting, Captain Joseph Farrow and his crew, including a man named Dirk Chivers, finally they saw sails on the horizon. It was the fancy. Henry Every stopped off to help, but there was a problem here. You know, fancy was a big ship, but so was Portsmouth Adventure. There was just no way that all of the marooned pirates were going to fit aboard. It's not clear how they chose who would go and who would stay. It wasn't a big deal. These islands were commonly passed by and commonly used to collect wood and water. Those pirates who stayed weren't going to die out there. In the end, though, Joseph Farrow and about half the crew of Portsmouth Adventure climbed on board the Fancy and they sailed off toward the horizon for adventures that we are not going to discuss today. The other half of the crew stayed behind, apparently under Dirk Chivers as their leader. So we've gone through Thomas II, John Ireland, and Thomas Wake, and that leaves us with just one name left on William Kidd's letter of Mark. There's not a whole lot of story there, but William May, the captain of the Pearl, got towed back to Madagascar by the Fancy. She was pretty badly damaged and wouldn't have made it on her own. After picking up the men of Portsmouth Adventure at the northwest corner of Madagascar, they sailed south and Henry Every dropped off the men of Pearl at St. Augustine Bay. And by that point, the pirates on board Pearl and those on board Fancy were on less than friendly terms. When they were divvying up the booty, it was discovered that some of the pirates on board the Pearl were clipping the coins that they handed off to the Fancy. Upon this realization, Every had his own men go on board the Pearl and take back a pile of gold and silver that they felt they were owed. Not a violent affair, but only because there were so many more men on Every's side. Now there's been a lot of movement today, so let's sum up a bit. We've got the Pearl and the Susanna at St. Augustine Bay, in the southwest of Madagascar, in poor shape. We've got Dirk Chivers and his men marooned on an island to the northwest of Madagascar. Then there's Henry Every and the Fancy, and Joseph Farrow and his men, who were on their way back west at sea. Which is pretty much everybody left from the pirates who attacked the Mughal treasure fleet. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow.
Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. But now... It's time to play a game of musical chairs. A lot of shuffling was going to happen at the very beginning of 1696. Of course, Amity was the first to play. After she left St. Mary's, John Ireland led the crew to find and capture the Charming Mary. We've heard that bit. Richard Glover was given the Amity, which wasn't a great deal. Amity was in poor shape, but at least he had a ship, and it's not impossible to imagine that the men of Amity even paid Glover a stipend for his sacrifice. So they traded, but then there was an election on board the Charming Mary. Ireland was out as captain. He was back to his post as a pilot. The men elected a Richard Bobbington as captain, of Charming Mary. Now this happened off the southeast coast of Madagascar. Back in the southwest at St. Augustine Bay, Captain John Hoare showed up in the John and Rebecca. And just in time. William May and his men were repairing the Pearl, and I'm sure they needed some supplies there. But it was the men of Susanna. Thomas Wake's former crewmen that didn't have a seaworthy ship. They didn't have a way home. They didn't even have enough men left to sail a ship home after that disease ripped through them. So those men all signed up to sail on board John and Rebecca. But then something very confusing takes place. Remember how I said just a second ago that Richard Glover was now sailing the Amity? That's true. But about March 1696, a different pirate named Robert Glover arrived at Madagascar in a 200-ton, 18-gun, 60-man ship resolution. You can see the obvious issue here. So many sources get confused about the difference between Richard Glover and Robert Glover. They can't tell who was where, when, and who was who, and everything that's to come. It's just a big, frustrating mess. So I'll get this out of the way. Richard Glover, former captain of the Charming Mary, now aboard the Amity, sailed for St. Mary's Island to get his new ship seaworthy. He and his men, though, were not kind to the locals. This was a common problem at St. Mary's. Adam Baldridge had that large group of young and pretty Malagasy girls who served he and his guests' needs. 
and that was a bit of a bone of contention between Baldridge and the kingdom on the mainland. Now, those girls were not there of their own free will. I don't think it would be accurate to describe them as slaves, exactly, but rather a tribute that was paid by the king to keep Baldridge from traveling over to the mainland and taking a bunch of slaves. So the girls weren't slaves, but they also weren't allowed to leave. And the services they regularly provided Baldridge and all the other pirates at St. Mary's wouldn't have been considered rape, but it was a sexual bribe that they were required to provide or else their families would be killed and enslaved in mass. So, you know, rape. But that was the deal cut between Adam Baldridge and the king of that corner of Madagascar. Here's where the issue begins to come in, though. Richard Glover, in an attempt to cover some of the losses he'd recently incurred, sailed over to the mainland and captured some slaves. He broke the treaty that had been made between the king of the Malagasy there on the mainland and the king of St. Mary's. This was the beginning of the breakdown of relations between Baldridge and the Malagasy. But Richard Glover and the Amity, with full holds, managed to sail away unscathed, heading south and west and then back north on their way to the West Indies. And this incident is worth remembering. By the way, it's all going to come back around before too long. Meanwhile... Robert Glover, of the Resolution, with Dirk Chivers now aboard, began to collect a small fleet. The John and Rebecca, with John Hoare, and the remaining Susanna men was the first to meet and sign up with Robert Glover. Those two ships just kind of hung around the Indian Ocean north of Madagascar for a while, waiting for any passing ships to fall into their trap, and did capture a couple of small prizes. But then, from the south, they were joined by the Pearl, now seaworthy, and Captain William May. At which point, this little three-ship fleet decided to set sail east to the coast of India. Now, we're going to hold off on telling that story. It's going to take a little while for them to arrive anyway. But at this point, I'm faced with a choice. There are two pirates to whom I could turn to finish off today's episode. Neither one is Captain Kidd. He's still in New York. We could follow the last of the pirates who took part in the raid on the Ganji Sawai, Henry Every and Joseph Farrow and the Fancy. Which might make sense. We've been talking about the rest of that fleet today, but that's a big story really too big to cram into the end of an episode. So instead of heading west with Henry Every and following a crew that had formerly been associated with everyone we've discussed today, we're going to head east to talk about three pirates who are about to be associated with all of the pirates we've talked about today. Their names are Ralph Stout, James Kelly, and Robert Culliford. We've mentioned all of these names before, but today, their story is going to begin anew. James Kelly got his start in piracy some 15 years earlier, sailing under John Cook on the first Pacific adventure. 
On the second Pacific adventure, he sailed with John Eaton and then transferred over to Bachelor's Delight. There, he served briefly under Edward Davis and then under George Rayner. Now, George Rayner and James Kelly took a cruise to the Indian Ocean in 1689. We've mentioned that before. And it's likely that Ralph Stout was aboard Bachelor's Delight as well. They returned to America in 1690. Now, that would put them in New York at about the same time that Captain Kidd arrived after losing the Blessed William, which was the same time that all of those mutineers who stole the Blessed William were hiding out in Rhode Island. Now, all of those pirates, on the one hand, William May and Robert Culliford, and on the other, James Kelly, Ralph Stout, they were about to begin two separate voyages to the Indian Ocean. They were going to begin their voyages at about the same time in the spring of 1692, but that's when it was safe to set sail. However, upon reaching Madagascar and St. Augustine Bay, they did decide to sail together. They also took on board some of those former signet pirates that had set up shop there at St. Augustine Bay. And just to put this in context, this was all happening during Thomas II's first voyage to the Red Sea. But these pirates weren't going to sail into the Red Sea. Instead, they were going to sail for the coast of India. Ralph Stout and James Kelly, who you'll also sometimes see recorded as James Gilliam in some of the older sources, but they were both there, on the coast alongside Robert Culliford, when the pirates were ambushed and arrested by Mughal authorities. James Kelly penned a letter from his Mughal cell, destined for the East India Company office in Bombay. That note read, quote, I, who am unknown, do lie here in a miserable prison at Yungar, do make bold to write to your honor. I am an Englishman, and taken by ye government hereof at Mangalore in ye most treacherous manner. I shall satisfy ye to ye full, both of my coming into ye country and also of their taking me, which in this small piece of paper as you receive it too little, for it would require a great deal more. And his letter did get into the hands of an East India Company official, pretty high up, in fact, the new governor of Bombay. But the governor did not deign to respond. He was too busy thinking about events more than 15,000 kilometers away. See, his father was a judge in the Salem Witch Trials, and currently they were at about the hottest they were ever going to get. That governor didn't care about some nameless pirate. So this trio of men were forced to look for other escape routes. Now, those three weren't alone in their imprisonment. Aside from the prisoners who were already there, they were captured alongside a number of others, but they were slowly whittled down. The prisons were dirty disease-ridden, cramped, and I mean, they weren't even allowed to have a drink. So Ralph Stout, James Kelly, and Robert Culliford tried a few escape plans, but none of them had any success at all. But in 1694, they came up with a new plan, kind of a long con. And the first step in that plan was they were going to have to get 
snipped, by which I mean they were going to have to get circumcised. Circumcision was not a common practice in the Christian world in the 1690s, but it was in the Muslim world. This was a consequential decision in the life of James Kelly, so keep it in mind. I'm not going to give it all away here at the outset, but I will point out that adult circumcision, especially before modern medical practices, left a very distinctive scar. Still, though, that was only the first part of the plan. Those three men seemed to have begun the process of conversion to Islam. It wasn't an honest conversion. They were trying to garner trust from their captors, and it worked. They were granted a, you might consider it a work leave. You know, they had a specialty, after all. Even if they earned it as pirates, they would do better on a ship than they would rotting away in some cell. So those three men were put to work on a dhow. They were chained up and under guard, but they were allowed to work in the sunshine and open water. Certainly better than a dingy old cell. But of course it was much better than a cell when you're looking for an opportunity to overpower your guards, to kill them, to take their keys and weapons, and to engage in a jailbreak. Which is what they did. It wasn't a loud, riotous affair. No, it was quiet. This was a stealth operation. It looks like those three pirates killed their guards and made their way silently to a boat, on which, under cover of darkness, they rode away to freedom. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon. All of you who have left ratings or reviews for the show, you all help get it noticed. I couldn't do it without you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, why not do so at brillig.com.au that's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight